Bloomberg Intelligence is brought to you by CME Group, the world's leading derivatives marketplace, offering the widest range of global benchmark products across all major asset classes. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A lot going on across Wall Street. One of the things that's going on in particular to Citigroup, the company is shutting down its muni business that was once the envy of rivals. And right now to discuss that, we are going to be talking with uh, Bloomberg finance team leader Sally Bakewell, who has been uh, leading the coverage all over everything developing with Citi. Uh, Sally, just kind of give us a, a 30,000 foot look of what this means for Citigroup as uh, CEO Jane Frazier still continues to reshape the company and its operations. Well, it means a lot for both Citigroup and it means a lot for the muni market there because Citi had really dominated that four trillion space of underwriting local and state debt for most of the past decade. In fact, it ranked among the two biggest of municipal bond underwriters by volume. It's been on deals um, like the rebuilding of the World Trade Center, um, on rebuilding the Port Authorities of New York and New Jersey. Um, but as City has struggled in recent years uh, through a number of issues and including its sort of inability to deliver um, returns and meet financial goals. And so Jane Fraser, who has been at the helm for a number of years, her broader aim is to make City a bank that, you know, serves large multinational corporations, but also improves returns, um, which have been trailing. Um, so I think the Muni business became incompatible with that goal um, for a number of reasons. I, I think a big one being that um, Texas is the biggest state for Muni bond sales, but City, owing to firearms policies, um, got frozen out of a number of big deals there. And that did crimp a lot of its revenue and ability to generate profits. And I think Deliberations continued for a number of months over this big decision, um, and they have, you know, decided that it would be better for City, which is undergoing a, a number of re restructurings um, in other areas, if it was out of this market. Yeah, the almost impeached, well, I guess he was impeached, it wasn't removed, but uh, the Attorney General, there, Ken Paxton, is kind of in charge of that, taking aim at uh, all the big underwriters, all the, uh, the money center banks that uh, have a policies with which he disagrees by freezing them out of that market. The end result was that 
It's taxpayers who foot the bill because the uh, they don't get the the best pricing for their for their munis. Uh, is there anybody around to pick up the slack, or are other uh, banks facing the same situation? Is anybody going to be left? <laughs> oh, I think the scrutiny is definitely there on all of the banks, but I think there are banks who are picking up the slack. In fact, a team of um, from City actually defected to Jeffries um, just in in November after news that City was weighing uh, pulling out. They, of this they saw the writing on the wall. I think the writing has been on the wall for for a little while. Um, in fact, City also shut the its Muni Prop trading desk not too long ago, um, which that was the desk that used the firm's own cash to trade and invest in the debt, and that has now translated to a complete wind down of the business by the end of the first quarter. But you know, City ranked um, number seven in in terms of Muni bond sale underwriting. Bank of America is first. RBC Capital Markets is second. Then you of course have the likes of J.P. Morgan, Jeffries, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo. So. In terms of picking up the slack, there, there is still very much a market there. Um, I think, you know, for City, it represented um, at one time, you know, a very significant business and also the ability of the bank to connect to the country on a broader sort of deeper level because it was providing financing for, you know, schools, hospitals, railroad and so on. And that's an important thing for a bank to do and to be seen to be doing. And Sally, just for a sense of how crucial munis are, what's the, uh, how does munis play into the broader business for these banks in terms of generating fees, just looking at the league table uh, that you guys have in the chart? Uh, Bank of America with an almost 13% market share at $44 billion of volume. Uh, how does that compare to things like IPOs and M&A and actually generating fees for the, these big banks? Yeah, I think it's a very um, substantial part of, of what, any, any bank that's involved in the market does. I mean, um, there is a sort of unending spigot of uh, material and deals to work on if you're in the in the municipal space. Um, so it is definitely uh, you know a, a blow for City that it was unable to really participate, for example, in the Texas market specifically, um, and to it's a big, it's a very substantial change for a, the company, which historically had been such a big player in this space going back decades. Um, but, you know, City is currently going through a big overhaul that it unveiled in September, its biggest overhaul in decades, where it's trying to refocus on five core areas. Um, the goal is to make it a leaner, more efficient organization to remove layers of um, management, um, again, with that broader broader aim of improving returns. And it that is going to um, spark a lot of change at the bank, which we've already started to see. We know that there will be job cuts and there have already been some job cuts and we can anticipate more next year. Um, but yes, the goal is to make City a, a, leaner, a leaner organization. And I think um, focusing on more higher revenue, higher margin businesses is is the goal. And, and Muni, its Muni business didn't quite align with that anymore. Well, yeah, Sally, we had the, the news uh, earlier in the week from our colleagues in London about City offering partial early bonuses amid this restructuring. So as you talk about and look at what the path forward looks like, what does 2024 actually look like for Citigroup to rein in their spending and costs and also compete in what still seems to be a very hot uh, war for talent on Wall Street? 
Great. And, and that's a really good point to bring up the, the bonuses with City because, yes, it offered a select number of staff um, the ability to take a portion of their guaranteed bonus um, now and leave rather than risk um, next year potentially losing their jobs under this restructuring but being left with no job and no bonus. I think it kind of underscores it's it's not it's a sh it's a fairly shocking move, um, you know, to basically ask people to do this. And I think it underscores the urgency with which Jane Fraser knows she has to um, start to deliver. Um, the bank had already tried to or has has nearly completed an exit of a number of its global retail markets. Um, and I think, you know, it's undertaken other measures to try and right the ship that perhaps weren't deemed to be fully effective. And this latest overhaul is a real attempt uh, to show shareholders that it can um, set financial targets and meet them, um, that it can improve returns. And I think for 2024, actually, um, things possibly are looking fairly solid. Um, we just had Mike Mayo, who's the Wells Fargo, very well-known bank analyst. He actually named City as his top pick among large cap banks heading into 2024, replacing JP Morgan Chase as his favorite. Um, so, you know, he he said he's he's been long and wrong on Citigroup, but he thinks that the restructuring is making them more simple. Um, the management is addressing, you know, two decade old problems at the banks and that it's seeming to get expenses under under wraps. So perhaps the the subtotal of all of these measures in 2024 is when we do start to see yeah. see them pay off. Are we going to see similar moves by other banks dropping their uh, municipal uh, departments? I It's hard to say. I think it depends on the level of scrutiny from Paxton. Um, it will depend on the, the economic viability of the business under that scrutiny. The, the other banks don't have the same issues as City, though. They don't have to make these dramatic moves um, to kind of really reshape the organization. So that, that I think, is what why City was slightly unique in feeling the um, impact of the, the situation in Texas and having to weigh up the viability of its business. It, it is doing this against this backdrop of um, as Mike Mayer said, a decades-long sort of problem at the bank of not being able to um, generate the kind of returns that the other banks were were able to do. So um, I think they will be under scrutiny, but they probably won't see need, feel the need to act in the same way that City has. City dropping its storied municipal business. Sally Bakewell uh, with the story for Bloomberg News. Sally, thanks very much. Appreciate your time. With CME Group's E-mini and micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of E-mini and micro-sized contracts in equity indices, interest rates, crypto, metals, FX, and energy. Learn more at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. 
Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Making the energy transition uh, no easy task as we try to... uh, uh, decarbonize utilities across the United States. Let's bring in our next guest. Maria Pope is the CEO of Portland General Electric. Uh, we uh, we got a picture of just how difficult that transition is. Uh, I think it was today or yesterday with uh, California, the governor there, in his attempts to recommission the uh, Diablo uh, nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon, uh, because they need it, basically. They can't just do it alone with uh, renewable sources. So, uh, Maria, what is the timeline for you guys with your utility, uh, Portland General Electric, to uh, decarbonize? And are you on track at this point? So we're looking to decarbonize the energy supply 80% by 2030 and then net zero by 2040. Obviously, we'll need new technologies by 2040, but we are on track with 40% of our customers' energy coming from renewable sources today. And with that technology transition, is that developed in-house? Are you licensing it from startups or kind of how does that play out? It really comes from a variety of sources. First, legacy hydro. Then we take solar and wind, battery storage. We have the second largest installation of battery storage outside of California taking place right now. Um, and we use a lot of technologies to integrate all of those renewables for safe, reliable, affordable, clean energy for our customers. Hey, uh, Maria, just how vulnerable is uh, your utility to droughts? You mentioned hydro uh, power and even wildfires with the transmission lines. You know, it's something that a lot of people ask. We're in actually a drought period right now in the Pacific Northwest, and we've actually been relying a lot more on energy from markets outside of this region. Uh, Much of that is renewable solar and um, other sources that come into this area, uh, but also being able to construct new wind resources, new solar resources is augmenting our legacy hydro. Um, as we look going forward, we will need ever-increasing amounts of renewable energy, which are today price competitive with other sources. And how much does that cost? What's your CapEx looking like to make some of these investments? You know, we have taken our investment up over time. And in the last three years, our invested asset base has actually grown about 30%. Overall, our revenues are also up about 37%. As we see customer growth, we have 5% more customers today than we did three years ago, and they're using 10% more energy. Uh, in terms of the uh, the total return opportunity for this stock based on the earnings per share, I mean, you guys have been beaten up to some extent uh, because of worries over the things that uh, the, we mentioned. Um, where do you head from, what's your message to investors at this point? You know, we're committed to growing at five to seven percent. We've been leaders actually in addressing wildfire. Uh, While one can never predict what will happen, we've invested tremendously in reducing those risks and again are committed to the five percent earnings growth trajectory. 
And when you look at expectations for 2024 and even beyond, looking at some of the the energy transition uh, mission or goals that you guys have in, in the state of Oregon and really broadly around the world has laid out, how does that how does 2024 look for your business? You know, 2024 looks really good. We actually will see revenues probably about 14 to 15 percent higher year on year as we turn into 2024. I'd also say that we're focused on meeting our customers' needs, whereas the largest semiconductors and global manufacturers to small startups and over 2 million residential customers who are focused on the clean energy transformation and ensuring that we do so with a smart integrated grid. Yeah, as we make that transition, I mean, overall, the grids in the United States, are they prepared for all this? And what sort of infrastructure upgrades do they need? And, uh, you know, are you getting any help from the Biden administration on that front? So we've been investing in grid technologies as well as infrastructure for a long time. We're the fourth largest electric vehicle market, as an example, and have been thinking about those new technologies for years. From the Biden administration, we're very fortunate to have received several very significant grants. One in particular around technology is a partnership with NVIDIA and the startup Utilidata. The three of us coming together and bringing our unique capabilities to deliver for customers, uh, to grow earnings, um, and to ensure really a solid clean energy future that is attainable in a very short period of time. That sounds like the intersection of artificial yeah, intelligence. Yeah, bringing in AI <laughs> to everything. I, I Well, I guess this is my, my question, Maria. We've been talking about this transition, and, and we've seen some things happen. I guess, are you surprised with where we are going into 2024 with how quickly or slowly things have evolved? And do you expect that to kind of pick up in the coming years? You know, it's interesting. We're very optimistic about the future. I mean, when we come together in partnership, we're able to do great things. And the acceleration of clean energy has been remarkable, not only for our company, uh, but across the entire United States and really globally. But we'll see coming out of COP, there's no question that this will continue to accelerate and that we'll work together on new technologies. One of the other uh, grants that we received was part of the Northwest Hydrogen Hub, a billion dollars to invest in hydrogen. And then we also have received $250 million on a consortium with the Confederated Tribes of the Warm Springs, where we have worked together with them, co-owning a 450 megawatt facility, uh, hydropower, that we will now be able to increase the transmission with a $250 million grant, enabling further renewable energy development on the reservation for the benefit of the future employment um, of the tribes, as well as renewable energy across the state. Is uh, climate change the far and away the biggest risk or uh, that you face in the future? Oh, I think we were facing a lot of risk as we go through a transformation. Clearly, we're using technologies. We're changing at a pace that is unusual for utilities, but very exciting. Um, and so as we manage everything from a changing and warming climate to changing expectations by customers to new technologies, it, what is managing risks is also managing opportunities. Maria, a pleasure. Thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. Maria Pulp, the CEO yep. of Portland General Electric. Uh, the ticker symbol P-O-R, and as I look at right now, among analysts, seven buys, five holds, and zero sells, the average price target for this stock, according to data compiled by Bloomberg, $48 per share. Just recently got upgraded this week over at Barclays, talking about the upside, and defi despite it being a wildfire stock, they 
kind of point out that we're exiting wildfire season and as someone who spent the first 18 years of my life in California, wildfire oh, no season yeah. is a thing. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's uh, switch to fixed income right now. Uh, Alex Patron, our next guest, the director of fixed income at uh, Rockefeller Asset Management. I missed out on 5%, but is, uh, <laughs> what are we looking at, 441 or uh, 392 right now on the 10? Are those screaming buys? I mean, 392 is the new 5%, right? Isn't that how we <laughs> we shift? And if you want spicy and, and not sleepy into the end of the year, that is what we have right now, quite clearly. Um, Rates driving the market, the Fed, FOMC, Jay Powell, Williams, happy to unpack that, uh, making it fun for us into year end. With all that speak and Williams today, I mean, how do you set strategy with all these different narratives out there? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I mean, we are long-term investors. We have said for quite some time, as we think about what was driving markets in 2023, it was the rate story, driving munis, driving corporates. In 2024, that is going to be no different from here. The, the message is quite clear this week from the Fed, even with Williams today. Williams came in and tried to walk back some of this dovish interpretation of what was a dovish meeting. Three cuts instead of two. Many people were caught off guards by that. The view from he Powell, was he was walking it back at the instructions of Mr. Powell. He was walking it back like at the instructions of someone, or he's a loose cannon. Whether that is the case is not for us to necessarily try to decide. But if you unpack what Williams said, is he said that we are not talking about cuts right now. That doesn't mean that they're not talking about cuts. So when you look at the summary of economic projections, the dot pot, what does it tell us? It tells us three cuts, it doesn't tell us when. And so the market feels like it got a little bit ahead of itself, pricing in six, some people calling for March, some people calling for June. What the Fed is telling us is they are comfortable with this level of employment. But how, how independent will the Fed be in an election year, in a year where there's expectations that looking at the world. Oh, is that fantasy? I mean, well, listen, we are here to think about market volatility, relative value. I can have many cocktail discussions around the independence of the Fed. That is a fun topic to really go down a rabbit hole or maybe Abigail mentioned Twitter. I'm sure there's plenty of things there. Our goal simply is to your point, John, 392, relative value or not, fair value. And what we start to look at is where do we see the trend line over the next three months, six months, 12 months across the rates market? And then most importantly, how is that going to impact the municipal market on a go-forward basis? How is it going to impact the municipal <laughs> market on a go-forward Thank basis? Thank you for letting me continue that. I think from our perspective, it's quite simple. Ratios continue to matter here. With this move lower in rates, you have a tremendous amount of demand that's come back into the market. So we look at rates, we look at technicals, supply and demand. Supply driven by new issuers stepping into the market, supply driven by whether retail is a net buyer, net seller. Retail has stepped back in, they're a net buyer. Tangential to that, can I just ask you a quick with the Citigroup uh, story dropping uh, the, their municipal department. How loony is the municipal market getting when you take into context the uh, you know, the whole Ken Paxton Texas thing? 
Another key risk factor that we really think about is liquidity dynamics in the municipal market. What you've seen since my early days, pre-GFC till now, is this consolidation of desks across the street. When we look at that, as the dealer community shrinks, it is a really unfortunate thing for the muni market, for investors. Liquidity dynamics change. There is more friction in those periods of mentioning technicals where there are outflow cycles and you have fewer people stepping in to provide liquidity. It can create some more challenges for those who need liquidity. It can create a lot more opportunities for those who are looking to be the source of liquidity. So while we don't like to see it, it's looking through that and really emphasizing managing the liquidity and side for of the a market. new homeowner like bailey it's just like probably means his taxes are going to go up at some point i mean it's right if you're having trouble doing these deals or uh, having an underwriter and the market is impacted that way ultimately it's going to be more expensive well, i guess you know let's make no mistake if you look at the market yesterday on you have issuers that are they are they are able to bring deals Illinois toll, example yesterday, 15 to 20 times oversubscribed. Spreads were half of what they were back in April when they brought a deal. You will still see deals being brought. I expect issuance picks up materially heading into next year, both in terms of corporate risk as well as muni risk, because guess what? The Fed has just made it a much better entry point. These deals will get done. It will just continue to be consolidated from here. Well, how much... I guess how quickly does the Fed need to cut for some of those deals to come to market or does that not matter as much? Well, they're coming now, yeah. right? We're seeing it. We're seeing deals that are added to the calendar. Abigail was talking about a sleepy week. We in the municipal market, we hope that next week we can catch up on all the, the work that we didn't necessarily do. You, you know, maybe trade on the margins. There are deals that are stepping in that weren't on the calendar. What areas, are the, next what areas week. in particular? In it's really market. across the board. Yeah. We're seeing healthcare. We're seeing general obligation risk. It is deals that were tagged to come at some point, likely in the first quarter, first half of next year. And they're saying, let's do it today based on what we're seeing at the moment. So regardless of even prior to the FOMC, call it pivot towards a softer tone, we expected that issuance was going to pick up in 2024, somewhere to the tune of $450 billion or so. I'm not exaggerating when I say this, but I get in the mail now, at least it seems like once a month, uh, a letter from, I don't know, some firm saying, you know, we represent, uh, well, in, in my instance, my healthcare provider, Robert Wood Johnson Hospital, saying, you know, they've been hacked. We don't think your personal information, but we're not sure... Uh, in the meantime, you should really monitor your credit. Well, no kidding. Is that, um, let's talk about cybersecurity risk, yeah. where it figures into your business yeah. and how important it is. Yeah, when we think about risks that are forming in the municipal market, we think near-term risks, so balance sheet pressures, rising costs, declining revenues, all of those things you're seeing, but then we think longer term as well. Cybersecurity risk is one that's on that is on our radar. No different than companies that are facing these same pressures. And so what we like to look towards our municipalities taking the necessary steps today to really protect data integrity, They're financial not. systems, scary stuff, John. Ransom, ransom. You don't want to think about that when it comes to muni credit. We agree they are not. It's a question of as these things, or excuse me, we don't agree that they are not. Many are. But it's looking through to ensure that issuers are taking the necessary steps today, just as companies are doing the same. 
And how is, in looking through some of the notes, how, climate risk? We were talking to the CEO of Portland General Electric earlier uh, about some of the green transition. You look at places like Florida and California where insurance companies are just leaving. So how does that factor into the market? You know, it's wild. It's something that we've talked about quite a bit um, on the desk. And as we think through bigger picture, longer term, the frequency of events, the intensity of events, they're going to get bigger, they're going to get larger. It is going to put pressure on balance sheets. So it's both some of the costs associated with rebuilding. State and local governments will need to issue more debt, both to shore up infrastructure, water resiliency, rebuild, but also bigger picture long term. What's the biggest risk for munis? Out migration, right? Look at Detroit. Think of some of those examples. And so as you think through it, I think the average individual buying a home is not really thinking through the climate risk. Long-term, big picture, areas like Florida, at some point, people will. And when that happens- Well, they're gonna think about it when they go there and they can't get insurance, homeowner's insurance, for instance. That's and not, that's happening yeah, everywhere, yeah. not just Florida. And that's not always the case. A lot of times when people really think about it, and there was a lot published on this topic earlier this year around insurance, it's when the event happens to them. So it's a little bit of hindsight. Alex? That was, that was great. I hope we didn't get too far afield of your... No, no, this is fantastic. A lively Friday. Alex Patron, the Director of Fixed Income at Rockefeller Asset Management. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options markets across all major asset classes. Visit your online broker and get started. See what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You know, uh, it's been a tough one for Google as of late. Uh, we had the story earlier this week about their uh, fight with Epic Games. Epic Games, yeah. They lost, uh, but is their trouble over? There's a tough, tough road ahead, potentially. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. Jen Ree is the senior litigation analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence on the Antitrust Watch. So what is, uh, what's the path ahead for, for Google at this point, or should I say Alphabet? 
Well, John and Bailey, I think Google's going to have a rough year next year. Um, you know, first they've lost with this jury trial on the Play Store side, and the judge will be deciding what the appropriate remedy is next year. Now, there will appeal, um, and they have some chances there, given how different this was from Epic's lawsuit against Apple. But I, de I don't really think that they're going to win that appeal and be able to overturn this verdict. It's a very high standard. So they're going to face a remedy in that area. The other thing that's going to happen is that there will be a verdict or a ruling in the Department of Justice's lawsuit against Google that finished trial earlier this year over its search business and whether or not it's maintaining a monopoly in Google search. And I think that decision is probably going to come out maybe late first half um, or sometime in the second quarter. Um, and again, I think that was a bit, that's a very close call, but I tend to lean toward the DOJ winning that one. So they may also be looking at a potential remedy imposed on their search business. Then the third thing, which I actually think is the most important, or, or I should say the riskiest lawsuit that Google's going to face, is a Department of Justice suit that's challenging its entire ad tech business. And that is in a Virginia court that moves really fast and could possibly get to trial toward the end of the first half of next year. How far does that go? I mean, it goes right what, up to the Supreme Court. You think? Well, they only go up to the Supreme Court if, the, if there's an appeal. If there's an appeal, and the Supreme Court agrees to take the case, the Supreme Court doesn't have to. And in fact, they actually only accept a very small percentage of the cases that apply to be heard. So, I guess I'm assuming Google would appeal anything that it loses. So, these things could actually drag out for a couple years. But at the very least, what it could see is some really bad headlines next year that impact the stock. Because if they have losses at the district court, while it's not over, because they will appeal and it will continue on, you know, those initial losses aren't aren't a good thing. And just to call out this week, uh, Alphabet down 2.5%. That compares in a backdrop with the NASDAQ up 3.4% and the S&P up 2.5%. Jen, just wondering, how much could this cost Google from a monetary standpoint, uh, given the number of cases ongoing? Well, look, it's so hard to say. So on the search side, let me start there because I think it's the easiest. I actually don't think even if they lose on liability and there's a remedy imposed, that it's really going to impact them in any significant way. Because at this point, they're entrenched. I mean, people use Google search. Most people prefer Google search to Bing or to DuckDuckGo. And even if they're in a position where they have to offer up choice screens, let's say somebody buys an Android device and they're using it for the first time and they get to choose the default search engine uh, rather than Google just being automatically installed, um, or if they have to sort of open up, open up the space, to other competing search engines, people are still going to use Google. So I'm not so sure that's whatever happens there, it's going to hurt them very much. Now, in the Play Store, it could hurt a lot more. You know, they make a lot of revenues from the 15 to 30% commissions they charge to developers. And that's really going to change if these remedies that we expect stick, you know, if they don't win on appeal, uh, because they're no longer going to be able to keep competing app distributors off Android devices, which means people can download these apps outside of the Play Store. And they're also no longer probably going to be able to link uh, an app developer within the Play Store using Google's payment services, which is how they collect those fees. And so I think there will be an impact. Um, I, they will obviously find some other way probably to make up for that revenue and charge developers for using their services. But if competition increases, that alone is going to force them to push down their commissions. So I think that one could hurt. This uh, Department of Justice has been particularly aggressive in antitrust cases. Can I say that? 
<laughs> Absolutely. They've been well, very why don't they just like, you know, try to wait out this administration and hope for a change uh, at the top? You know, uh, they very well could, because if they, if they can do whatever they can to drag their heels, you know, they can appeal, they can try to slow those appeals down. Um, they can do those sorts of things to try to drag it out. You know, if you think about it way back in 2000, when Microsoft lost a really big monopolization suit, they actually got out of it in a sense because the administration changed. George Bush became the president. Um, it was remanded to the district court. And in the meantime, George Bush's administration settled the case. And so that kind of thing does happen. Things change with administration. So certainly they can try to do that. You know, I have to tell you, John, I wonder all the time why all these big deals I'm seeing get signed up. Don't just wait, <laughs> because they're also aggressive when it comes to challenging mergers and transactions. And when you look at some of the, the antitrust battles that Alphabet is working through, are there similar cases that come to mind that you can kind of look back at as examples of what could play out in the coming months and years? Well, the Microsoft case I mentioned, even though it's really old at this point, is one of the best examples. Um, up until now, up until the last two years, the enforcers, which includes the Federal Trade Commission too, not just the Department of Justice, rarely ever sued a big company for monopolistic conduct. This is really new. So you had Microsoft, you had a few other little cases, and then about five years ago, the Federal Tr Trade Commission sued Qualcomm for monopolization in the chip markets. They lost that case. They won at the district court, they lost on appeal. That case ended when the Supreme Court refused to review. So we don't have a lot of examples. And what we saw with Microsoft, I think that's really important for all these cases, is that while Microsoft was found guilty, one of the things the appellate court said is that a structural remedy in these instances is really drastic. And it has to be applied only with enormous caution and the least sort of imposing or intrusive remedy that will fix the problem is the one that should be used. And so it suggests to me that if the courts are following that precedent, even if there is liability found here with Google, that structural remedies are really unlikely. And then when it comes to social media and the debate over whether or not it's addictive, particularly for uh, <laughs> youngsters, what's happening on that front and what are the risks to uh, Google Alphabet? You know, there's a lot of activity on that front, but on that one, I'm afraid I'm going to have to refer you to my colleague, Matt Shetnelm, who is covers more of the consumer protection side of the Federal Trade Commission. And he has been all over what's happening on the privacy front. Um, and I think you'll have to speak to him because on the FTC side, when it comes to Facebook, Meta, I should say, I am much more focused on the current lawsuit that the FTC has to try to force Meta to sell off Instagram and WhatsApp. That's, that's the one that I'm following more so than the privacy suits, although the privacy suits have more immediacy right now. And it, I guess what other, you mentioned it, but what other trials are you keeping an eye on or should we be keeping an eye on in terms of uh, whether it's the antitrust space or kind of other big tech names? Well, you know, we have a lot going on, as you both mentioned earlier, against big tech. So there's been a lot of focus on Google. There are a lot of cases against Google. But, but bear in mind, we also have a pretty big case against Amazon that's pending by the Federal Trade Commission. And that's challenging uh, some of Amazon's third-party seller practices. Um, 
anti-discounting practices, they call it, that basically forced sellers to provide the lowest price that they provide anywhere on Amazon. So that's pending. Um, the lawsuit I just mentioned is also pending and could even get to trial next year where the Federal Trade Commission has challenged Meta saying, hey, you just run around and you have for years buying up your competitors so that you don't have viable competitors down the road. You look at these nascent up and coming startups and if you think they could threaten you down the road, you're just buying them so as not to compete with them. And that's what the FTC alleges happened with WhatsApp and with Instagram. And so we have that pending too. So among kind of the big four big tech platforms that we all understood were under scrutiny, the only one so far that isn't facing a Department of Justice or Federal Trade Commission lawsuit is Apple. And that could still happen. I understand that investigation is still ongoing. And we haven't even brought up Europe and the regulators there, yeah. but that's that's a discussion for another day. Jen, thanks. Good. Always a pleasure to see you. Uh, Jen Ree, the senior litigation analyst, uh, antitrust with uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid to large size companies like yours to help manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce.